LADEE, NASA's first lunar mission to launch from the Wallop Space Flight Facility. Will this satellite help answer lingering questions from the Apollo days? Can the onboard laser communications demonstration help enhance the future of deep space communication? Find out on NASA EDGE. Welcome to NASA EDGE. An inside and outside look at all things NASA. And just over to our right is Mars. The Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. You got me there for a second, because I'm here wanting to announce that we're going to watch Laddie launch here shortly. And you got me thinking about Mars, so. And Laddie is, is what? The Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environmental Explorer. And over the course of the next couple hours, we're going to be talking to a number of subject matter experts live here on the set and also some prepackaged interviews. Yeah, and of course, the big thing tonight is we're going to witness a lot of firsts. This is going to be the first time a rocket's ever been launched here at Wallops and going to the moon. The second of the first is that this is the first launch of a Minotaur 5 rocket. Now, just to clarify, the first launch of the Minotaur 5 ever or just here at Wallops? Ever. 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 And okay. I tell you what, let's real not, milestone tonight. Let's not give away all the milestones because oh, yeah, we're going sorry. to be talking to a lot of subject matter experts, and we're going to let them talk about those first because we're going to get really into, into nuts and bolts of those too. All stations, this is launch conductor on the primary countdown. Then, T-minus five minutes and counting. PCC switch avionics internal power on. Jim, planetary science. Yeah. What, what, tell us about the science that we're going to learn from this mission. Well, you know, this is a big step for us going back to the moon. You know, uh, the Apollo astronauts, what they found when they were there were a couple mysteries that Laddie's actually going to take a good hack at and solve, we believe. One of them, you know, the moon was just so dusty, dust everywhere. And what they saw, particularly right at the terminator area between the light and the dark part of the moon. The terminator. That's my term for it. Yeah, okay, that's pretty cute. The Terminator. Explain, explain the Terminator. <laughs> because as the light moves, it's it's like the next day. You're following the day the day night line. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. The Terminator. Sorry. Sorry about that. No, that'll folks. work. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> but what these guys saw were what looked like clouds of dust, jets coming up. And what we believe is happening is, you know, some of this dust gets charged there's an electric field that occurs and that lofts the dust and it may go as high as 50 kilometers maybe even 100 kilometers so these dust clouds laddie's going to fly through did, so that's one mystery did the astronauts demonstrate fear when they talked about i mean wouldn't that be scary if you're on the lunar surface and you look over and these things <laughs> shooting up 50 kilometers into the air are you kidding after launching on a saturn five <laughs> their fear of little dot <laughs> touche <laughs> no they were fearless uh, no, they had all the right stuff so in any event another big mystery about the moon is we're finding that the moon actually has a very thin atmosphere we actually call it an exosphere now it's not like an atmosphere we have here where all our molecules collide. On the moon, those molecules, those atoms don't collide. But we want to know where that's coming from. We want to know if the moon is outgassing. What is it outgassing? Well, we what is know? outgassing? Because it sounds pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's exactly what you think happens. And that is, interior to the moon, there's a variety of processes for which gases will leak out. Now, how does that happen? Well, that may mean that there's volcanic activity, but we don't believe that. We believe the moon doesn't have much, if any, volcanic activity. It did in its past a lot, 
but probably not today. But you know, the tidal forces continue to do the heating. There's material that's just underneath the surface that uh, appar apparently leaks out uh, on certain occasions. And we want to understand what that is. Now that could be some volatiles. That could be some old cometary material that's been laying right underneath the surface for billions of years. How do you study the dust particles? What kind of things do you need in the mission to do that? Well, we have some instruments, uh, some science instruments on LADEE that will be flying very low over the surface of the moon. We'll be flying into and out of the terminator, so we'll go into the dark, and then into the light, and then into the dark. And we have instruments that are active during that time which will measure things. One of the instruments that we have is LDEX. It's a lunar dust experiment. It actually measures the impact of little tiny dust particles against the instrument as we fly through the terminator. And so it can tell us how much dust is, is uh, there. We have a neutral mass spectrometer, which is designed to measure atoms and molecules around it. And then we also have an ultraviolet visible spectrograph, which is a remote sensing instrument. Uh, it actually looks in a distance to see absorption or emission of various elements around the terminator. You're also carrying a technology demonstration. Yes, we're carrying a tech demo uh, experiment with us, the Lunar Laser Communications Demonstration. And this is an experiment to transmit high bandwidth communication over optical links from lunar distance back to the Earth. It's a very important technology because right now we use radio frequency to transmit data back and forth, but we have high hopes for optical communication. This is a key experiment to show that that's possible. Why would we move from radio communication to laser communication? There are a lot of advantages in using a laser. Uh, for example, because the wavelength is so much shorter uh, by about 10,000 times, it means that you can make much narrower, tighter beams. Radio beam is a wider beam. A laser beam is a much more narrow beam. It lets you to deliver more power and more concentrated power at a distance onto the target that you're communicating with. I'll give you an example. For a radio system from the moon, like the one that flew on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, their beam footprint covered the western United States. And our laser beam that's going to White Sands, New Mexico, is only about six kilometers in diameter. So it's this little tiny spot on the Earth. And you have to do a lot of tricks to make that happen. First of all, you have to actually point ahead of the target because you know the time delay from getting from the moon back to the Earth things are moving, so if you point back to where the target was on the Earth when you saw it, by the time the beam gets there a second and a half later, it's moved a little bit. So you actually have to lead the target like a quarterback will lead a wide receiver with the ball. Another thing is that the spacecraft itself, little motions on the spacecraft from reaction wheels or, or instruments that are doing things, they will even disturb the beam. And so one of the things that we've done with LLCD is developed a system that will measure the jitter, the motions of the spacecraft platform, and then compensate out for that motion. Do you still need the big radar dishes, or, or what's the footprint of the receiver down on the ground station? That's an excellent question, too. It's actually uh, much, much smaller. Uh, instead of being a radio dish, use a telescope, because you're catching light. Just like you're looking at the stars, you're catching light. So use a telescope, and we use a combination in the White Sands ground station. We have four telescopes that are about 17 inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. and they're ganged up, they have a fiber optic behind them, and so the light that comes in gets caught and focused into that fiber optic and that takes it off to a detector. And the detector sees those light pulses and turns that back into electricity and those electric pulses become the data. 
you know, it seems like you're you're having to do an awful lot, even though you're getting more sure, data. Sure. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of challenge factor. Uh, what's the reward? Well, the reward is, first of all, you can get a lot more data bandwidth uh, for the given size and uh, power consumption of this terminal. So if you're going further out into space, if you want to go to the moon, you want to go to the Lagrange points, or you want to go to the asteroids like have been discussed, you can have a smaller terminal which uses less power, it's got a smaller aperture, it doesn't have a big radio dish. You get an order of magnitude more bandwidth and it's actually less limited, meaning that you know, as our technology will improve for laser communications, we can get even more and more bandwidth. Now why, why do we care about that? Like you said, it's a big risk. Because you can see NASA's science applications and human spaceflight applications are demanding more and more bandwidth every year. Imagine, for example, if you wanted to go to an asteroid and you could have a 3D HD TV channel or several channels coming back from multiple angles and you could actually do telepresence. So you could have someone here on the Earth controlling a robot, a robotic spacecraft with, uh, you know, 3D imaging capabilities picking things up. So that's the kind of bandwidth you need and that's what laser communications can provide. We're back here live with uh, Anthony Colapreet, the principal investigator of the ultraviolet spectrometer. Good evening, Anthony. Good evening. Uh, give us a little insight about the ultraviolet spectrometer uh, and its goals of this in this mission. Sure thing. Yeah, the ultraviolet spectrometer is an instrument that separates light and uh, it separates it into little pieces so you can see what the light's made of. Our spectrometer looks from the ultraviolet below what we can see in the blue, out past what you can see in the red into the near infrared, and what it's looking for are signatures of atoms or molecules in the lunar atmosphere. When these atoms and molecules get into sunlight, they get excited and they relax. When they relax, they release energy called fluorescing mm -hmm. and they send out a certain color light. And by measuring that color light, we can tell what kind of atom or molecule they are. It also looks for dust scattering, just as you look in the sky and, and it's a dusty day or there's a fire and it scatters uh, light. We're looking for that too, and that's how we can measure actually with the instrument dust in the uh, lunar atmosphere as well. So are you looking for a specific color signature then? For the gas atoms? Yeah. So for example, sodium is a yellow line. Okay. And if we see this particular yellow line, we'll know that there's sodium, and by measuring how bright that line is, we know how much sodium is there. Dust is similar. Dust has got a broad shape to it. It's not a, a, an individual line. Okay. But depending on the size of the grains, the color, the slope, if is it more red or is it more blue, will change. And so we can say if it's uh, something a little bit about the dust as well. Now you already know that there are certain atmospheric species already there, right. but you're also searching for others. Yeah, we can see some of the gases here from Earth. Sodium in the atmosphere of the moon is uh, measured routinely from Earth ground observatories. Another atom that's measured from the ground is potassium. During the Apollo area, we measured atoms like argon and helium. but we suspect there's many others we just can't see. We don't have the sensitivity with the instruments we've looked at with before, or we can't just see them from the ground. We know what the moon is made of in general, the mineralogy and the rock makeup, and we think we have models and understanding for how that interacts with the sunlight and radiation. So we think there should be other gases there, like iron, like calcium, and, and even potentially hydroxyl OH in water. So we are definitely on a hunt to discover what else is there around the moon. Mm -hmm. Are you designing something that's high-tech in the ultraviolet range? Or are you just buying components off the shelf, putting it together and, and flying it in space? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And our instrument has a, a lineage that goes back to a spectrometer you can buy out of a catalog. Wow. And so that's one thing about LADI is keep, keeping costs down. 
and keeping it cheap. And it's something we actually inherited the, the technique from the Elcross mission, which I was a part of. Right. This instrument was actually, has its lineage to the Elcross mission, which was built and designed by a off-the-shelf catalog spectrometer. We worked with Draper Laboratories and Dr. Dave Landis, who helped us take these commercial components, ruggedize them, build them to much higher quality and standards so they can survive the 200 days we're in space. And then at NASA Ames we integrated into an instrument with thermal systems and whatnot. And we're able to do that much more efficiently and cheaply than having to build it from scratch. I can't tell you how little I understand about what, <laughs> what this instrument does, but I'd really like to. So could you tell us about the basic science behind the NMS? Well, what I brought along was a prop here. Uh, Props are great. Love them. This, <laughs> this is actually awesome. is uh, the housing of a mass spectrometer, the vacuum housing. It's empty right now, but in Laddie, it contains an ion source, which basically will pick up gas as it flows into this instrument yep. and mass analyze it. Okay, and it, I, I see. So the, the ion, what was it again? The ionizer? An ion source. Well, the ion source? This is essentially a nose. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's a you, great you, way you, to describe it. You talked to Tony Colapri, and, and that was the UV spectrometer is kind of the eyes. Okay. But, you know, we're the nose. We kind of sniff at what's passing by us as we fly through it. Talk to us a little bit about the Terminator, the area that you are kind of going to focus on with NMS. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the lunar orbit as Laddie goes around the moon because what happens is even though argon is very very inert when it hits the surface at night that surface is just so cold that it essentially just freezes out it, it resides on the surface then as the sunlight hits that part of the surface then it, it starts to bounce nice. up into the atmosphere and if it hits a warm surface it'll bounce again but it's not going fast enough to leave the moon gravity still pulling it back and so there's a little part of the orbit around the moon where we should see those gases come up. What type of science are you going to get from actually looking into the Terminator? Well, we have models of, of how we think these gases should behave, the physics of how they behave, how high they bounce, how fast they come off the surface, what they do in the grains when it's very, very cold. Do they make their way to the very, very cold polar region eventually mm -hmm. and just stay there? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, water might do. And so if we make actual measurements, we can understand if those theories are right or not. And then we really can predict what other exospheres, what other atmospheres in places farther away from Earth that we can't get to so readily look like. We've talked about the spectrometers that are going to be on Laddie, but you're a little bit more esoteric in your title. <laughs> uh, you're just an experiment. So what are you trying to prove? Okay, so in theory we are closest to our friends who build the, the neutron mass spectrometer that we are making in situ measurements, not remotely observing something, but right at the detector. We are measuring the impact of dust particles as we fly around the moon. They will hit the instrument with speeds roughly about 1.6 kilometer per sec. And we could tell you every single hit how big it was and how fast it came into the instrument and we can tell you how dense it is, what it is uh, size distribution and how it is changing as we fly around the moon. Have we ever done that before on the moon? This has got to be we, another one of our firsts that we've been talking about. This is the first about. one. There was a Japanese mission which carried a dust detector that flew at least 100 times further away than we are and this instrument of course by it was 20 years ago by now it is the technology is much more sophisticated the instrument is much more sensitive 
and mm. it is dedicated to do the lunar dust measurements. So it will be just fine. Are you going to be able to use the instrument, the information or data from the other two instruments to uh, to help what you're doing specifically, or are you all kind of in independent of one another? No, no. The beauty, as most of the time it is, the sum of the three instruments is bigger than the three sets of measurements. So the our ability to combine data from our friends with the UV spectrometer and the neutron mass spectrometer would give us a much better understanding of the dust and atmospheric environment. Uh, none of us alone could go all the nine yards. We need each other. NASA has done a really great job just over the last few years in building up our knowledge of the moon. So we've got the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter there now, which is building a great map of the moon and understanding the surface. And last year we had the, the GRAIL mission that helped us get an understanding of the interior of the moon. And so LADEE is actually able to sort of complete that picture by giving us a view of the atmosphere and dust environment around the moon. So it's actually sort of really a great complement to the, the route that we've been on for the last few years in exploring the moon. So the idea there is being, you know, after this we'll have a very thorough glimpse of what life on mo the moon would be like or what the moon what everything about the moon there's no life no there's life, on, no life on, the on the moon i did not say that there is no wow. life on the moon uh, but but really what's going on there in a more complete way that's true yes why are we launching from wallops and not from ksc Oh, that's a great question so the minotaur 5 is derived from a peacekeeper it's the first time we've launched a Minotaur 5, but not the first time we've launched a Peacekeeper. Right, right. So the first three stages are derived from the Peacekeeper, and there are certain treaties in place that restrict where we can launch a Peacekeeper from. And there are three places where we can launch it from. Here, Kodiak in Alaska, and Vandenberg is the oh, other one. Okay. But we need to launch heading east in order to get to the moon. And so Wallops turns out to be the only really viable option for a place to launch from. And that would open the door for other launches of this kind, for this facility. Well, it's certainly the That's biggest right. that this facility has handled, and they've handled it beautifully, so... Absolutely. What are the people who are working on LADEE, what are they experiencing right now? All the workers who are getting ready for this launch, what must be going through their minds right now? Well, you know, people have been working on this mission for five, six years now, right? And so, you know, they've put their blood, sweat, and tears into it for that long. And we're all sort of, fingers crossed, hoping for a beautiful launch tonight so that we can right. pay that off. Why does it take 30 days to get to the moon, whereas you know, during the, the Apollo days, it only took three or four days to get there? Right. The, the uh, Apollo missions all went directly to the moon, which you can do if you have a great big rocket. Um, our rocket's a little smaller, but it's, it's big enough to get us to the moon, but it, we, we're taking a scenic route. We're actually looping around the Earth a few times. Each time we go around, we get a little further out until we get far enough out that the moon's gravity pulls us in. Oh, interesting. That's kind and of a slow, <laughs> gradual approach to getting there. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's but, it, but it gets us there. It gets us there with a smaller rocket and less fuel, and so it, it's actually really great. And it actually allows us some sort of flexibility in the dates when we yeah. arrive and things. And once it gets to the moon, mm -hmm. how long does the mission last? So we've got about 30 or 40 days to sort of check things out, um, make sure the instruments are working the way we expect them to and stuff. And then we have 100 days of science, okay. which is pretty short for your typical planetary mission, but we're really constrained with fuel because we are flying so close to the moon to get the data that we need that we have to use a lot of fuel to, to keep from crashing into the moon. <laughs> so we are doing orbit maneuvers every few days okay. to maintain our orbit, and that uses up a lot of fuel. So we have about 100 days, uh, and that's about it. We've been talking about a launch window, which, which I understand is the opportunity we have, a time frame, uh, to actually launch the rocket. Um, why is it four minutes tonight and then it's 15 minutes tomorrow? Right, and actually the previous night it was only about a minute, a minute. because uh, the configuration of the moon, the fact that the moon is moving around the Earth, and 
we want to go into these phasing orbits so that we can get a boost from the orbits around the Earth. That means that we have kind of a narrow window. It opens up in time and uh, after a while it will close down again because it's between September 6 and 10 is really the optimal time okay. this month. And that's wor because we're getting closer to the moon at that point. In, in principle, and yes, yet. but the moon is also moving in its orbit so we have to uh, really uh, get the most favorable orbital conditions. Gotcha, so. gotcha. So okay. what you're saying is it's a lot of high-level mathematics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, orbital mechanics <laughs> yeah, can be, that's, that's correct, right. right. And I'll never get into that orbital mechanics club, you know, I just right. I can't crack right. the math on that. Right. One, page 59 of the Lighty Minotaur 5, final launch checklist. T-minus one minute and counting, Orb TM, start LCR Dewey. Dewey started. Check step 122. Charlie, this is a great day for NASA. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great day for NASA, for Orbital, for, uh, for the country, to be yeah. quite honest, because it's, um, you know, as you know, it's the first time that we've, we're going to the moon from the eastern shore of Virginia. Yes, yes sir. Uh, here at Wallops. Everybody's excited. It, um, it's just changed everything for this part of the country. How does it feel to, to be part of something where we're seeing all these first? I mean, Ames's uh, first spacecraft, uh, First, uh, uh, Minotaur Five. First, from Wallops to the Moon. How, how do you how do you express uh, how awesome well, something it, like that it's, is? It's it's really awesome. I it's not like you know. I always reflect back to the '60s when when the nation was at war outside the country. The nation was at war within because of the civil rights movement, mm. and yet we landed on the moon. Uh, mm. That was an absolutely incredible time. Not very much unlike today. You know, we're we're discussing war outside the country. We're at each other's throats inside the country, and yet, you know, NASA and our partners are getting ready to launch back to the moon again. And we're trying to get humans to Mars, to places we've never been before. So, uh, as always, you know, NASA is a visionary organization, a, a, a group of future thinkers. Uh, we're, we're focused on the future, and I think it's good for the nation. Well, and we're seeing that. I mean, across the board, from our social to the scientists involved to the engineers, yeah. Yeah. people are coming together, and they're very excited about what we're about to see. I, I tell you, a very special yeah. moment. So well, glad it, we're it, here. It is. Now, one more thing I'll sure. add. You know, just tonight, I've met colleagues from Korea, from Japan, from the Ukraine, from Canada, from Germany. Uh, like you said, from all over the world. Some of them have nothing to do with this launch, but they're just excited with the fact that we're launching out of Wallops Island in, in, on the eastern shore of Virginia. Pretty impressive. <laughs> From Mars, That's actually, cool. from the Mid-Atlantic uh, <laughs> Regional Flight, uh, Space Flight, uh, Spaceport. It's good stuff. Well, well, Charlie, yeah. we're happy to have you on the show, yeah, and everybody's here. excited to get to the launch, and uh, that's what we're about to move to right now, so everybody just stay tuned. The launch at Laddie, coming up in just a second. Great. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, ignition. Congratulations to NASA on another successful launch. And to all the guests in our show. Spoiler alert, we already know that the Lunar Laser Communications demo was a success. And to learn more about the science aspect of the mission, check out www.nasa.gov. You're watching NASA Edge. An inside and outside look at all things NASA.